excited to talk about Texas 31st. Me too. It is a really fascinating district. You know, I last week I was really, really excited to talk about this, but in the meantime, since we interviewed Dr. Mann, John Ossoff lost, and I have to admit, I'm a little depressed. <laughs> yeah, you know, I had told myself that I wasn't emotionally involved in that election, and I really believed that I wasn't, and then it happened, and now I'm depressed again. <laughs> you know, our, our listeners don't know. First of all, we never tried to interview John Ossoff because um, he was getting so much press already. And they also don't know that we tried to interview a potential constituent of his, and uh, we started <laughs> to get the feeling kind of early that maybe the enthusiasm wasn't with him in Georgia 6 the way that it was on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and as someone who berates people in other parts of the country for thinking they understand West Virginia politics, I really should have known better all along. <laughs> yeah, boy, I hear you on that. And, uh, and, and I'll also say it, it had me thinking a little bit about our podcast and, uh, and, uh, what we should be doing, you know, from outside the district. Um, you know, I, I think that those of us who are coastal elites or or West Virginia elites maybe <laughs> or uh Chicago elites other members of our team um you know we we have to think about uh what exactly is our role in these elections if any um but that said Texas 31st it's a great district and uh I, I think that this is something that more people need to hear about you know whether that be people living right in Texas 31st or people elsewhere they should know about this race because it's it's really interesting, you know. Um, before before we got to know Dr. Mann, I, I actually didn't know that uh, the 31st District is actually pretty much cut along the lines of two counties. Mm -hmm. um, and, and these are the two counties directly north of Austin. And historically, you know, you would say that these two counties would be considered safe Republican. By that I mean Bell County went 62% for the current Republican representative, who's John Carter, and Williamson County went over 57%. That's, that's the, the southern county, the one a little closer to Austin. So it's not a surprise that Williamson County is a little, a little bluer. Now, what also is interesting about this district, though, you know, like I said, it's almost exactly these two counties, but actually there's this tiny little pocket of Democratic voters carved out these three precincts, and those get handed off to the Texas 25th district. And I'm a little perplexed by this. I don't know why they did this, because the 25th is solid Republican, too. But anyway, that's how it's split up. Uh, so just as a side note to any of our listeners who are interested in partisan redistricting, which I know is an issue in Texas and in a lot of other states throughout the country, uh, the Supreme Court just decided to review a partisan gerrymandering case out of Wisconsin, Gill versus Whitford. And I'm really interested to see what happens with that because historically courts have basically stayed out of battles over partisan gerrymandering and only gotten involved when the gerrymandering is based on race. So it's going to be interesting to see what the Supreme Court does here. Uh, that decision is likely to come out sometime next year, so I would just encourage people to keep an eye out. 
Now, JB, I, I saw there was already some kind of vote over this case that came out five to four. What, what exactly was the story there? That's a great question, Sean. <laughs> oh, I mean, my understanding is that it was that that they voted on whether or not it was going to get stayed. Yes. Um, and that stay was uh, so in these types of in certain types of voting cases, they don't go through the normal process of the federal court system where you go in front of one district court judge and then you appeal it up to an appellate court and then you go to the Supreme Court. Uh, the way that cases like this one work is it was actually in front of three district judges um, and then it gets appealed directly up to the United States Supreme Court instead of going through an appellate court. Okay. And so, uh, so this was an appeal of the decision of the three district court judges and the first round of briefing and what the Supreme Court decided was that they uh, were going to stay what the lower court had ruled, which was that it was, uh, I don't know if unconstitutional, but impermissible to redistrict in this purely partisan way. Okay. So I'd heard that maybe that was not a great sign because... It's not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So there you go. Um, (laughs) Okay. But anyway, back to Texas 31st, you know. Yes. These districts... Like we said, they're historically very red, and that's bad news. But I still think that this district is flippable for two reasons. The first is that Trump did a little bit worse than the incumbent Republican in 2016. In Bell County, he got about 54% of the vote, as opposed to the incumbent 62%. And in Williamson County, he only got 51% of the vote, whereas Carter got 57 So my gut tells me that this district isn't too impressed with Trump in the first place, and I can't imagine he's gaining steam now. But more concretely, when I look back at the 2014 midterm turnout to see what we can expect for 2018, my expectation, of course, is that the turnout will be lower in any midterm election. But I was pretty floored by how much less interested the 31st was in an off-cycle election. So as our baseline in the redder Bell County, about 51% of registered voters turned out in 2016. When we look back to 2014, it was only 26%. That's less than 44,000 people. And in Williamson County, The turnout was a little better in 2014, with about 38% of registered voters turning out in the midterm, compared to a robust 68% in 2016. So, of course, as we saw with Archie Parnell down in South Carolina, the other special election that took place the same night as John Ossoff's, we know that low turnout means that whoever's the most fired up is the the side that's going to make the gains. And I think that bodes really well for Dr. Mann in Texas 31st, you know. We know that in the past, these voters haven't been that interested in midterms. And we also know that Democrats are really, really fired up. So, you know, I haven't done a thorough review of Texas congressional races, but one thing that I noticed is that year after year in several congressional districts, there's always a libertarian on the ballot, which really surprised me. 
Yeah, that's true. And over the last decade, Libertarian Party candidates have been gaining steam, especially in the Texas 31st. So in 2016, Libertarian candidate Scott Ballard got 5.2% of the vote, which is more than third parties get nationally. And even though people who vote Libertarian do tend to be on the conservative end of the spectrum, I think there are some Libertarian values that Texas Democrats represent. And also, like other parts of the country, some of these votes may have been protest votes by people who traditionally voted Republican, but have become increasingly disillusioned with the Republican Party, uh, particularly in this age of Donald Trump. So at the very least, I think that this increasing trend for the Libertarians shows that a growing percentage of voters in the 31st at least aren't completely tied to their Republican Party affiliation. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. And I also think that um, it's at least an opportunity for Democrats, depending on their message, you know, because so much of partisan politics in the past few years has become about us versus them, almost like a sports team like or religious um, commitment to being on one team. And if Texans are less willing to, uh, let's say, vote party line just because of this sense of loyalty, that that does say to me that the right candidate could really make some incredible gains in Texas. I agree. And something that I was also just talking about with another group of people is that if you view politics not as a line with a left and a right, but as a circle, I think that there's an area where like the libertarian right meets the left in a, a lot of issues. Um, I was actually just talking to a former member of the West Virginia legislature who identifies as a libertarian about this. We agree on criminal justice reform and legalizing marijuana and things like that. And so even though, you know, some people who vote libertarian may be seen as traditionally far right, um, I think that there are issues that they share with Democratic candidates um, where they can get together. You know, I think you and I also have had a lot of conversations where, you know, you come at an issue from the left and I come at it from more of a, a libertarian perspective. But, you know, we kind of land in the same place. Absolutely. Criminal justice being one of those areas. Yeah. I know that you also like to tell people about how uh, your like crazy left vegetarian friend voted to legalize Sunday hunting because blue laws are stupid. <laughs> Right. You know, I think I think that there is a lot of middle ground, you know, depending on the issue. It's just a question of, um, you know, what what the candidate chooses to focus on. Um, you know, back in the 2016 election, actually, Texas was something we all had our eyes on because we understood that the demographics were changing. And I think you wanted to share a little bit about that. Yeah. So the demos in the 31st, particularly, I find really interesting. Um, so the Austin metro area has grown a lot, and keeping with that, both Bell and Williamson counties have grown quite a bit since 2010. Um, so from 2010 to 2015, over 100,000 people moved into the district. Uh, Bell County added about 25,000, and Williamson County added over 85,000. And with this growth, the district also became less white. So although the white population in both counties grew over this time period, the black, Asian, and Hispanic populations grew faster. And the district is now almost 25% Latino and 11% black, with over 4% of residents identifying themselves as members of at least two racial groups. 
Obviously, we know that race doesn't determine how a person will vote, but larger populations of people of color do tend to be a good thing for Democrats. So I think it is at least something to note. You know, and it's also my understanding that this area has seen a lot of tech job growth and other, um, you know, kind of the kinds of industries that we associate with large metro areas as the Austin metro area expands. So, you know, I think that I think that it's very possible that Texas 31st is going to look more and more um, like any other major city. And that tends to be bluer, which I think tends to indicate that this could be a flippable district. And these things are changing so quickly, first of all. And second, Democrats are becoming so much more politically engaged, especially young Democrats. It'll be really interesting to see what happens here. It absolutely will. And I always really enjoy learning about new districts and also seeing how Democrats in different districts have different views than, um, you know, people may assume. So uh, I have to say that I kind of love when Democrats in districts like the Texas 31st care about gun rights, um, even though that's not a big issue for me. And I, I think that's always something that's kind of fun and interesting to learn about these local districts. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it'll be really interesting to hear from Dr. Mann how she views local issues. Um, But, you know, of course, this is all going to come down to turnout. And, you know, Jamie, I've talked to you a lot in the past about the trends in special elections since Trump's come into office. And the thing that we've noted is that Democrats have been doing a much better job turning out, at least in the special election context, than Republicans have done. And if that trend continues and Republicans turn out for this election consistent with the way that they did in 2014 and previous midterm elections, this is going to be a bloodbath. Yeah, if if Democrats can get their people out, then things are going to get interesting. So with all that in mind and acknowledging that we both think that this is an exciting district to watch, I can't wait to introduce our listeners to Dr. Mann. Welcome to Beat the Contenders, a podcast to introduce donors, activists, and volunteers to Democratic candidates running for offices all over the country and who will need our support to win. I'm Shauna Bray, an antitrust lawyer in D.C., and I'm here today with my co-host, Jamie Lincrofts, a civil rights lawyer in West Virginia. And today we're talking to Dr. Christine Mann, a candidate running for U.S. Congress in Texas's 31st Congressional District. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Dr. Mann. Can you tell our listeners a little about yourself and why you decided to run? Yeah, sure. So um, I've been a family practice doctor for 18 years in uh, Central Texas. Uh, I'm a wife and a mother. I've got three kids who are all grown. Um, I've been politically engaged for quite a while. I did work with Battleground Texas um, for the Obama campaign, for both both of those campaigns. Uh, I worked on the Wendy Davis campaign, um, and then through the 2016 elections, through um, the uh, Wilco Democratic Party, I, I worked with them. And I've been doing voter registration for over a decade. I've been doing block walking and um, data entry and so forth. And I've always thought about running for office. The original plan was I'll get done with my medical practice, retire from that, and then run. But uh, the 2016 election really changed all that for me. Um, 
I found myself saying over and over again after that election, someone has to do something about this. Uh, someone has to uh, fix this. And I realized that I'm someone and I can do something. That's great to hear. Uh, so to let our listeners know, the Texas 31st serves a strip of Central Texas from North Austin up to Temple, and the demographics in that area have changed a lot in recent decades. How do you think the changing demographics have affected politics in your district? Well, it has energized Democrats um, prior to this year. The Democrats kind of stayed quiet. We we didn't re- even realize that the rest of us existed. Um, I live the precinct that I live in voted for Donald Trump by eighty one percent to nineteen percent. So uh, we we have this area that's um, thought of as as very red, but. After the 2016 elections, not only did I get activated, a lot of other people did, obviously, across the country, and we were able to recruit uh, multiple Democratic candidates for the municipal elections in May of this year, and we won several seats. One of the candidates that I worked for, uh, Rachel John Rowe in Georgetown, and Georgetown is a very red city, she won her race uh, by 50 points. And then in Cedar Park, which is another uh, area, the two women who ran for city council won their races by double digits. So it was kind of a recognition that we we do have a presence here and we do have a, a voice if we will just get out and vote. And we had doubled voter turnout um, between the last time there was a May election to now by grassroots efforts, and that's what it's all about. Uh, these candidates got out and knocked on doors, and they met people. The party got out and knocked on doors and made phone calls, and we had a great group of volunteers, and so that's the effort that it's going to take, and it can be done. It's been pretty great to see all the renewed activism since the election. Do you have a plan to get people who maybe aren't registered to vote or haven't been to the polls in a while out to the polls in your district? Yeah, I've got a couple of things going on. Um, we are in contact with a group called JOLT. JOLT is a Latina-run organization focused on Hispanics. Uh, Hispanic women run the group, and they are trying to engage the Hispanic population to become registered voters and to get out to the polls, and so we want to do an, an initiative with them. Um, as I mentioned, I'm a voter registrar, so that's a big deal for me is to engage populations that don't traditionally vote as often. And then the other thing that my campaign is doing is uh, we are working to get purged voter lists, and then we're going to collate that with um, the voter activation network access that we will have. And I'm trying to build an army of voter registrars. One of the things I'm trying to get all of my volunteers to do is become voter registrars. And then we're going to reach out to people who have been purged to find out, did you re-register yet? Did you even know that you've been purged? Um, How can we get you re-registered? We will come to you and, and do that. So I take from that then that you have access to the people who've been purged? Yes. You have the ability to reach out to them directly? 
Yes, the problem that we have is that we don't know if the people who dropped off the list are because they moved or because they didn't have proper ID or if it's because they um, chose not to re-register. We don't have that information. So we have this list of 20,000 people from one county, and there's two counties involved, um, that we're going to have to do quite a bit of work. And I, 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 I'm not sure we can get to everybody on the list, but we can try. You know, we can start. And um, one thing I talk about a lot in my campaign is that even when the odds are against you, that doesn't mean you don't try. You still try and reach those people. Do you think that's something that could be duplicated in other states? You know, I don't I don't really know the state rules for getting access to these purge lists, but that sounds like a really valuable effort. Uh, if, if anyone is interested in that, in most states, you probably can get access to at least some of that information through the state's Freedom of Information Act or Sunshine Law. Mm-hmm. Um, voter purges is something that we've been uh, looking at here in West Virginia and in a bunch of states around the country. So if people are interested in this type of work, I would encourage them to get involved. Jenny, maybe maybe you can do a, a write up for our blog about that because that's very interesting at meetthecontenders.com. Um, I just got a purge letter recently from the state of Virginia, which I did in fact move from, so that was fair. Um, I'm you know I'm glad that they were checking and that you know I, I am in fact registered now in Maryland, but um, I was pretty curious when I got it to see it in the first place and wondered, um, you know, how they were calculating that and if people can get re-registered easily and quickly if they find themselves sort of wrongfully purged. Yeah, so thank you, Dr. Mann, for doing that work. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. incredibly important work. Yep. Yeah, happy to do it. Voter registration has been a passion of mine for a long time. So one issue that is pretty big at the national level and at most local levels, I think, around the country right now is health care. What solutions for affordable health care do you support? Those of us who work in healthcare are most focused on what can we do to get our leukemia patients and our transplant patients and our really sick people covered right away. And so I try not to focus on one solution for coverage. My goal is universal coverage. And there's more than one way to get there. Um, single payer would be the easiest it would solve so many of the problems that we have with um, insurance company-based health care. But I will accept hybrids. So if we had a hybrid system like some of the countries in Europe where some people are covered through government programs and some are through insurance, as long as everybody has access to that, as long as the subsidies are generous enough that people can get on those plans as long as Medicaid is expanded enough so that low-income people can get it because like in Texas our state legislature legislature chose not to expand Medicaid and that's totally unacceptable so my goal is immediate universal coverage and we could do that by expanding Medicaid letting buy-ins occur for Medicaid and or Medicare, increasing subsidies for lower income people so that they can afford plans, and then start working toward, well, what's the ultimate solution? Because to me, the ultimate solution is single payer. So who are the different people or organizations that you're, who you're talking to to shape your thinking on this, on this issue? 
Well, um, way back when Obama was elected and the debate about what health care reform was going to look like, I was um, involved with a group, and I can't remember the name of the group, but it was physician, it was a physician group who were in favor of single payer, and I in fact went and testified before the Texas Medical Association at a public meeting in favor of single payer. Um, and so there are physician groups who are in favor. There's another group that I just joined, and I can't think of the name of, of it either, um, but the the whole of the medical community, the American Academy of Family Practice and the American Osteopathic Association and the American College of OBGYN, we are united in saying that eliminating the ACA is not in our best interest and not in the best interests of patients. So it's not hard to find support in the medical community um, as far as organized support for um, universal coverage. There are individual doctors, of course, who don't agree, um, but the medical community as a whole is in favor. So I assume as a supporter of single-payer that you are not a fan of the AHCA bill, the House passed? That would be an understatement. <laughs> what are you hoping to see from the Senate? I hope they do nothing. Um, I was just reading about a uh, tactic that the Democrats could use to block the Senate from being able to go forward with it, and it would involve introducing amendments because they have created a situation where they're going to use reconciliation to try and pass the bill, which requires only 51 votes. The, the strategy would be to introduce amendment after amendment after amendment that would have to be debated and voted on to delay the process of getting the bill through um, and um, filibustering without a standard filibuster is, is basically how people are thinking about it. So Austin has enjoyed a bit of a tech boom, especially in your district. I was just there recently, um, had a wonderful time, and I noticed that you know there was certainly a bigger tech presence, more and more engineers coming to the area. How do you see the role between federal government and local job growth? I think that there's a collaborative and supportive role. Um, if local governments are passing legislation and using their leverage to support job growth, then the at the federal level, you would support that. And, and what I see happen all the time is that the Republicans say they're all about local control until something happens that they don't like. Um, but job growth is something that we should all be in favor of. And so there should be a collaboration that builds on what the local government thinks should happen because local governments know best what their communities need in terms of jobs, right? So if, if for instance, and I'll, I'll give you an example here, um, 
the city of Georgetown, which is Republican controlled, a Republican mayor, they have converted to 100% renewable energy. And they did it in collaboration with business and it was a job creation um, boom for the area. So when the federal government tries to put prohibitions in place for um, encouraging renewable energy, even though the local government is saying, hey, this is what we want here, that, that is counterproductive. So college debt became a big part of the 2016 presidential primary, at least among Democrats. But since Trump came into office and appointed Betsy DeVos as his secretary of education, the existing forgiveness programs have come under fire. What kind of education funding reform would you support? Um, I'm in favor of tuition-free higher education. I don't think it's right that people come out of college saddled with debt. Um, you guys may know, a lot of people don't, because when I tell people this, they're surprised, but the state of Tennessee just introduced tuition-free college. Tennessee, a red state, uh, the legislation was introduced by a Republican who sold his plan to the community, to the politicians, to the business leaders, explaining to them why higher education is so important. It's important for business. It's important for wage um, uh, acquisition and uh, wealth acquisition for individuals who then can spend their money in those businesses locally. So there's a benefit to business to educate our uh, populace. So uh, tuition-free college provides a path towards uh, a, a more educated uh, populace. And so uh, I'm in favor of that. I also really think we need to expand access to pre-K um, education so that uh, some of these kiddos, especially in uh, lower income areas who uh, may have parents who are working multiple jobs and, and aren't there to, you know, read stories to them all day. Well, pre-K is a way to help with those kinds of problems and prepare students for um, K through 12 education. You know, it's interesting. I was just reading this morning about North Carolina dramatically cutting its funding for the law school. And some pundits believe that this was retaliatory because one of the tenured professors had some extreme left-wing views in their opinion. Um, so I, I definitely see a tension between who should be writing the check between the federal government and the state government. And I assume the example that you're citing to in Tennessee is actually state funding. Right. So what do you think that balance looks like between taxes that the state is raising versus taxes that you would be appropriating in Congress? Yeah. Um, so I think that what I would say is I, there's other states that have done this, uh, New York and I believe it's Oregon, who have done the same thing. And so one of the things that I believe is that you look at what works, you look at the evidence. And so without trying to dodge the question, what I want to see is what works. How does this play out in Tennessee? How does it play out in New York City or in New York State? How does it play out in Oregon? And is it something that can be done just with state funds or do we need to come in on a federal level and enact it? And, and realistically, I think 
that it's going to end up having to be at a federal level because you're going to have states that just are not going to sign on to it. You know, um, state legislatures that no matter what the evidence shows are just not going to be in favor. So, um, like many things, I think that there can be a hybrid approach where some states, um, are involved at their level and then the federal government works, um, in other places. I think Jamie Lynn could tell us about a state that refuses to fund things no matter what the evidence says. Yeah. I Um, could tell you a lot about it, but we might not have a state government in a couple of weeks, so we'll see how that goes. West Virginia is is trying some some real nonsense lately. Oh, my gosh. Um, So, you know, understanding, though, that higher four-year college education is incredibly expensive. You know, we're, we're debating if states should be paying for it, if the federal government should be paying for it, if high-income families should be paying for their kids to pay tuition. You know, it's clearly it's a lot of money. So what kinds of job training programs outside of four-year colleges do you think the federal government should consider, and what legislative solutions would you support? Yeah, so um, I think that the idea that everyone should go to college um, is not correct. And if I sounded that way with my early answer let me let me just clarify that you know there are some people who college is not for them and um, I think the common theme though is um, education in areas that you have an aptitude for so people who have an aptitude to go into medicine we support that but people who have an aptitude to go into a trade position. We support that also, but I really think we need to be looking at what are the job categories we're going to need going forward. Um, I think that we're making a mistake as a country on not focusing on green energy. Um, Other countries are passing us by on that. And I, you know, there, there's been this debate over the last few years about the federal government not picking winners and losers and just letting the free market decide. Well, we already pick winners or losers. We, we subsidize um, coal and oil and, and so forth. So I think we need to move in a direction of, of supporting at the federal level job creation that will lead us forward, not what we have always done in the past. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to tell you a specific legislative piece that I've already written or I'm thinking about written. It's more about the idea that, um, we need to look at supporting industries that will provide growth going forward. For me, that, you know, solar and and wind energy and so forth are, are high on the list of that. And Texas obviously is known for its oil and gas industry, um, which has had a rough couple of years like coal here in West Virginia. But obviously, America still needs energy. Um, What do you think the future of energy in the United States looks like? Um, Obviously, there are some renewable types that you're looking into. Yeah, ultimately, um, I'm going to stick with that. I, I just sun and wind are never going away. (laughs) right right so I I'm sympathetic 
to the idea that we have to be concerned with people who work in the oil and gas industry. And I'm not talking about day 27, we just cut them off and, and those jobs are gone and too bad, so sad. Um, but I think we can make a move that direction. Right right now, the, the Republicans are doing everything that they can to halt that progression to renewables. And they are... They are using their ties to the oil and gas industry to inhibit job retraining so that people who are in industries that we are going to phase down um, are not able to get retrained in industries that we can use moving forward. So the legislation needs to be about a transition. It's not like we cold turkey go off. Um, oil and gas. And there's been some transition. We all know that the costs of renewable en uh, energy have gone down. Um, the um, solar energy is a huge growth in a huge growth phase right now. But that's despite what the federal government has done, not because they have. And so we need to support that. We need to stop looking at it as winners and losers and looking at it as what's best going forward for the country as a whole. And it's obviously getting off of sources that are going to go away sometime and onto sources that will be here forever. So I've lived in both urban and rural places, and it seems to me that a solution for gun control that makes sense in Baltimore doesn't necessarily make sense in rural Oregon. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about sensible gun control and what that looks like to you? Yeah, so I have been a supporter of Moms Demand Action for a long time, and I really think that they are right on target with most of the solutions that they present. I, I own guns. Um, I live in a place where it takes, on a good day, 30 minutes for help to get to me. And that actually happened to me one time when we first moved into my house. Um, I had an incident where my dog was indicating that there was someone on our property. And we live on a big seven-acre property, um, so I could see out into the yard. And I spent 30 minutes sitting terrified waiting for... Um, the, the sheriff's department to get there. It was late at night and I was by myself. And um, so we, we have uh, guns in our home because for us that feels safe rather than having to rely on something that might not get there on time. So I'm sympathetic to that point of view. I'm sympathetic to hunters. My um, uh, my sons and my uh, husband have hunted in the past. They enjoy doing that. Um, it's not something they do all the time, but it is something they enjoy. So, yeah, Oregon, um, you know, you're going to see a lot of people who keep guns because they want it for protection. They're in a more rural area and uh, they want to do hunting and other activities. So, but the the easy stuff, we're not even doing the easy stuff. We're not even putting restrictions on semi-automatic weapons that you can mow down people in a very short period of time. And I don't know why you would need that in a hunting situation. 
Um, it's unlikely you're ever going to need that in a home invasion system. So, you know, there's some obvious steps. Reciprocity laws um, don't make sense to me, where if you uh, have open carry in one state and you cross state lines, that state has to offer, um, has to honor that. Um, if, if it's correct to say what works in one state doesn't work in the other, then that state should have the right to have those laws in place and not have another state's laws supersede theirs. So one issue that I noticed you care about is women's equality. How do you think we can address differences in pay for women and especially mothers? So I got asked a question about that on my Facebook page, and it wasn't really a question. It was a, a gentleman who said, anyone who thinks the pay gap exists is an idiot and should be laughed off the stage. And it really got me thinking a lot about it because the argument that says there's not a pay gap says, well, if women would just take um, jobs in science and tech, and if they would just not have babies and leave the workforce, and if they would just go into more dangerous jobs, well, the pay gap wouldn't exist if you eliminate all those factors. Well, okay, let's think about that for a minute. Let's say all women said, you know what, I want to make more money in my lifetime, so I'm never going to have a baby again. Our society would, would cease to exist. So you can't eliminate that as a factor. It's a real thing. Women have babies. It's necessary to sustain a society for women to have babies. And we shouldn't be penalizing that. Um, so generous paid maternity leave or paternity leave or, you know, if you've got a, uh, an adoptive couple, a same-sex sex couple who um, is adopting a, a, a child and, and needs that time off to bond and so forth. So we need to expand on that. And they actually did that in Nevada. Um, the state legislature there is 40% women, and they enacted all sorts of pro-women um, initiatives in this past session. Uh, and one of them was a uh, generous um, paid leave for um, family issues. So that's one piece of it. Um, where science and tech jobs are concerned, I don't know that there's really a legislative solution to that. Um, I think as women who are in higher uh, technology, uh, more scientific fields, we should try and mentor younger women to help them um, see that as a viable solution and be role models for that. I think in K through 12 education, you could work to encourage um, girls to enter um, into the more challenging um, science classes, uh, the AP classes and so forth. Um, so I don't know that there's a legislative solution for all pieces of it, but it doesn't mean you don't have the conversation and try and come up with solutions. And when there is a legislative solution that exists, you should pursue that. It's great to hear that you've really thought about this because I feel like for a lot of people, it's easy to just kind of say like, of course, I think women should be equal and move on from there. Uh, but it's great to hear that you've thought of some concrete possibilities. Yeah. Right. And not everything has a legislative solution. You know, right. I think you're absolutely right that having role models and mentors is incredibly important but you know we can't we can't force people to do that we just have to uh, give people the freedom and space to explore their options in the right. school system yep so you're running in what i'm sure republicans view as a reliably red district what yes. resources is your campaign going to use to win this race so um 
piece one is building on what I saw the candidates who won the last um, election was, and I should back up to 2016, um, despite the fact that Donald Trump won the district, we elected a female county commissioner for the first time in Williamson County in 2016. And the common theme with all these women who were elected is they got out and they talked to people. They uh, knocked on doors and they held, um, you know, coffee, meet, and greets, and they, they went and met as many people as they could. Um, and I'm trying to replicate that. Uh, I've been meeting with, on an average week, you know, five or six times a, a week in the evenings and on the weekends and during lunches, I am out in small groups talking to voters. And when you do that, if you get those voters to support you, then they start talking to their friends um, about it and they start promoting you to a wider circle. So um, I find it very valuable to um, not, it's not that I'm not going to hold rallies. I, you know, I've got one coming up, but I don't know that the rally model is the best way to win in a race with a um, geographical uh, limitation. I'm about an hour away from everybody in my um, district, so I can get out and meet, meet a lot of people. Um, but the other piece is I keep reminding people about the victories that we are seeing across the country in places that have been traditionally Republican to give people a sense that we can do this. Um, we're seeing dramatic swings from Republican to Democrat in many different localities. And I keep a running, not not a complete list, but uh, kind of a running list as I see those things pop up. I'm, you know, talking about it and posting about it and I'm having conversations about it. Um, but, but ultimately, um, my mindset is even though there's a possibility that no Democrat can win this seat, that doesn't mean you don't try and you try every time, I believe we should contest every race every time and we should do it as vigorously as, vigorously as we can. Um, and we should just not leave any seat on the table. That's the only way we really know where we're at. That's the only way we can see if we're moving the needle or not. So um, whether or not the odds are with me or against me, I'm gonna run a vigorous campaign. That's great to hear and you know, Sometimes when races seem like they're out of reach, they're really not. Uh, here in West Virginia, Democrats flipped uh, the entire Morgantown City Council just two months ago. <laughs> that That is one of the examples that I use. Um, I read about that and I was like, wow, that is really awesome. Um, that And there was a, a seat in New York, which New York is blue, but this was a Republican forever held seat that... Um, Trump won by 15 points just six months ago, and the Democrat won by 29 points in May. And that's in a six-week period of time. I'm sorry, she won by 14. So it was a flip of 29 points in a six-month period of time. And we've got examples like John Ossoff in Georgia. Um, he may not win, right? But he closed the gap tremendously, and we have to focus on margins. We can't just look at the win-loss column. We have to look at how these margins are closing. I agree. So do you have a plan on how you can speak to voters who maybe have voted Republican in the past? 
I do. Um, there's a couple of things. First of all, uh, I was a business owner. I owned my own business for about 11 years. And so I have a background of being in that business world where I understand what it's like to try and hire quality employees and retain them. And I understand what it's like to live under all the regulations that small and medium businesses live under. Um, so I feel like I can use that experience to reach out to those more moderate uh, Republican business owners where their main reason for voting Republican is they think that Republicans are pro-business. Well, um, I can try and build a bridge to those people using my past experience as a business owner to say, hey, look, I get it. Let's find a solution. Let's work together um, to find something that works. Um, the other thing that I'm doing is reverting back to some of the stories I've already told you guys about um, the GOP-led city council in Georgetown that uh, enacted 100% renewable energy and the Tennessee legislature that is solidly Republican and they enacted tuition-free college, which is a progressive goal. How did they do that? They talked about the benefits to the business community and they explained why those things are of benefit, how they save money and they um, improve the business environment in those areas. And so you just have to talk that language to um, people who are more moderate Republicans. Um, you have to use those uh, examples of cost savings and um, benefit to business and job growth and so forth. So those are kind of the two pieces that I'm looking at. If our listeners want to learn more about you, volunteer, or contribute financially to your campaign, where should they go? So I've got two sources. One is my website, which is Christine for Congress, and that's the number four, ChristineForCongress.com. And my Facebook page is the same, Christine for Congress. So um, on my webpage, there's uh, donation buttons and volunteer buttons. And on both of them, there's contact uh, information that you can get in touch with me and the campaign uh, to get more involved. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys for having me, and uh, thanks for doing this. I, I think it's a really great way to get um, our voices out there. Um, you know, podcasts are uh, a, a big thing right now, and, and the more that you guys do, the more that candidates like me have the opportunity to get our message out. Oh, well, well, thank you so much, and we'll definitely be keeping up with your race. Okay, thank you.